0: Welcome to Kidney Essentials, a podcast for medical students, residents, and advanced practitioners at the University of Colorado and beyond. I'm
1: going to start with introductions. Judy, you want to start? Yeah, sure. So I'm Judy Blaine. I'm an associate professor in the renal vision at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus, um, and my interests are podocyte cell biology and glomerular disease, and I have no conflicts of interest. Sophie. Hi, everybody. I'm Sophia Ambruso. I'm an
2: assistant professor at the Denver VA and I'm on faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. My interests are medical education and I like to dabble in some clinical AKI research. Um, I have no conflicts of interest and my um, Twitter handle is at Sophia underscore kidney.
0: And hi, my name is Sarah Young. I am a nephrologist at the University of Colorado. I am technically a visiting associate professor of clinical practice. <laughs> Remember that you'll get quizzed later. on that.
2: <laughs> What is this all about?
0: <laughs> um, and uh, I, uh, my areas of interest are lupus nephritis and critical care nephrology. So, before we get to our cases, I should say this: this talk, this no, it's not a talk. This podcast is going to talk about what's in a urine, and we're going to go through several different little clinical cases to help you understand how we use urine electrolytes to understand what's going on with a patient. Um, but before we get to that, let's uh, talk about how our awesome podcast is now on Apple Podcasts. And we want people to give us a review of five stars to help other people who are interested in our podcast find it. Please check out also our previous podcasts on hyponatremia and our mini podcast where we explain a mistake we made in our very first podcast. And now, Sophie, why don't you tell us about our mission?
2: So I'm going to abbreviate our mission a little bit, but most importantly, I just want everybody to know that we're here to make nephrology sexy, one episode at a time. On top of that, we also want to make nephrology more accessible and less intimidating, and offer everybody some pearls um, that you can understand.
0: And we want more people in nephrology, and more women in nephrology too, right, guys?
2: Yeah, come party with us. Yeah, lots more people.
0: Yeah, we have
2: exactly. I have a glass of wine with me right now, gang.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I have seltzer water.
1: Um, Judy, what about our legal disclaimer? Um, so the fun legal stuff this podcast is for educational purposes only the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and this podcast should not be used as medical advice or for treatment purposes great so this
0: is the part where we start to we just ask some questions to help our audience get to know our hosts so our question this podcast is what is your earliest childhood memory sophie you're on
2: so I think my co-hosts either have much better memories than me or much more vibrant um, early child, child, childhoods um, compared to mine because my memory is not as fantastic, but I'll go ahead and share it. Um, my, what I remember is I actually didn't really know my grandfather, and I think he died when I was about three. But my one memory, and probably one of my first memories, at least that I can recall right now, is him bouncing me on his belly. One thing I guess I can uh, mention is that he did have a very vibrant style and he was always wearing different colored checkers that would clash with his pants and his shirt. And I do remember I that. I do remember
1: that. <laughs> That's funny. Judy, what's your first memory? So my, one of my earliest memories is of traveling in Namibia, which is a country um, in Africa. It's really arid and desert-like. And we were traveling near a huge canyon. I was with my parents. And um, they decided to pitch the tent for the night near the canyon. And I looked up and I saw all these clouds. And I kept telling them that a storm was coming and that I didn't think it was a good idea to go camping. And they ignored me and proceeded to pitch the tent. And just after they got the tent up, this huge gust of wind <laughs> came along and blew the tent right into the bottom of the canyon. Um, and I didn't even care about the tent at that point. I was just really mad that they hadn't listened to me about the storm warning, And so after that, I was kind of known as the weather forecaster for any trips that but we But what took. I really want to know is, where did you guys sleep the whole
2: trip? Oh, you slept the rest of the trip in our <laughs> tiny car.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so beware, do not ignore Dr. Blaine. Mm-hmm. She exactly, when it comes
1: to weather. Yeah.
0: My earliest memory is that I, I grew up overseas, and um, I had no hair, and my parents had not, um, had not pierced my ears at a young age. I ended up getting them pierced later, but at the time I did not have my ears pierced. And so everyone thought I was a boy. And uh, I finally started to grow a little bit of hair at the age of five. And uh, the first opportunity that I had when my parents went out for dinner and left me with my brothers who were technically babysitting I took a scissors to my hair and cut it
2: off and <laughs> horrified my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she ever forgave me. But clearly oh, you were not um... traumatized whatsoever. <laughs>
0: no. <laughs> um, Plus you have a
2: lovely head of hair now.
0: I do have hair now. It took a while to grow some, but. Um, all right. So now on to our cases for this episode. So we're going to take several cases to try to elucidate how nephrologists use urine studies and chemistries to evaluate patients. So our first case is a 70-year-old man who is found down in his home by his daughter who came to check on him. He has a medical history of hypertension and early dementia. She had spoken to him earlier in the week, and he had been reporting having the flu. His blood pressure is 145 over 89 he has a pulse of 90, and the medicine team calls because he has not produced much urine since admission. Sophie, what urine studies might be helpful in this scenario?
2: Um, Well, I'm going to keep it a little bit simple, uh, and I'm going to check at least a urine sodium. And in this scenario, I'm hopeful that it will be effective in um, taking a look at what his effective circulating volume is. Um, just for a little bit of perspective, a normal urine sodium is in general above 40 milliequivalents per day, but it can go up quite a bit more just based on what our intake is. So um, a low urine sodium, and while this value is a little bit disagreed upon, we'll just say for these examples it's less than 15 milliequivalents per liter, and being low like that. Um, I think we feel fairly comfortable that um, this patient would be avidly reabsorbing sodium uh, approximately in response to sort of reduced effective circulating volume. Um, The other thing that's important to realize is that if the kidney is able to get the urine sodium this low, in general, we can feel fairly confident that we have sort of intact sodium regulation by the kidneys.
0: Great. And I just want to point out Sophie's use of the Word effective circulating volume, urinary sodium tells you what the kidney is feeling. It doesn't tell you about total body sodium balance. So there are states that can lead to a low urinary sodium because the kidney feels underperfused like congestive heart failure or cirrhosis that can also give you a low urinary sodium. But in this case we'd be looking for a low urinary sodium because we thought he might be volume depleted. Judy, what things can mess up the urinary sodium and make it not reflective of the effective circulating volume?
1: So there are a couple things that can make the urinary sodium um, not uh, truly reflective of the effective circulating volume that the kidneys are actually seeing. And the first one is extreme urine volumes. So if you recall, as we discussed in our first episode and in the mini bonus episode, if you're having a water diuresis, so you're making a lot of urine, um, say, producing 7, 10 liters of urine, even though you're not salt deficient and you're actually excreting um, a lot of sodium, say 100 milliequivalents of sodium a day, On a, if you were making 7 liters of urine but excreting 100 milliequivalents of sodium, on a spot urine, this would only come back as 14 milliequivalents per liter, which, if you didn't know that the patient was making 7 liters of urine a day, you would think that they might have a low urine sodium, even though they actually do not. And the second, um, uh, the second, um, the, the other thing that you have to remember is, is that sodium is, is, is always a concentration term in, in the urine, the urine sodium. So, in the, conversely, if you have a really concentrated uh, urine, for example, 25 milliquidants per liter of, of, of sodium with a total Of one liter of urine output, this actually suggests a daily sodium excretion, which is quite low. So you always have to look at the urine output when you're thinking about the urinary sodium. Um, And the second thing uh, which can mess up the urine sodium and make it not truly reflective for effective circulating volume is something else that's being excreted along with the sodium, such as a non-reabsorbable anion, like a ketone or sodium bicarbonate. Because you cannot make electrically charged urine, if you excrete a non-reabsorbable anion, if you're excreting a lot of it, you need sodium to go out with it um, as the cation. And so you can actually have a high urinary sodium in those cases, even though the effect of circulating volume may be low.
0: Okay. So just to recap, when you're looking at a urine sodium, you want to know whether the patient's having extreme urine volumes, um, which may affect your ability to interpret a spot urinary sodium. And in addition, um, you want to ask whether the patient might have negatively negatively charged molecules, such as anions, which may be dragging the sodium out uh, um, in the urine against its will in some respects and leading to obligatory um, increase in urinary sodium that does not reflect um, perfusion of the kidney. So in this case, the team sends off a
2: urinary sodium and it returns at 10 milliequivalents per liter. What does this tell you, Sophie? I can tell you, number one, it tells me that I'm really happy that I have an easy lab number to predict, or not to predict, but to interpret. So just to recap, 10 milliequivalents per liter is less than the 15, so that's a really low value of urine sodium in the urine. Um, so since the team already told us that this patient is making very little urine, um, a low urine sodium, like 10 mL equivalents, um, suggests that the kidney is not being perfused. And so based on the clinical history, this patient's volume depleted from the flu-like symptoms that are reported. So that's my greatest suspicion.
0: And what does the low urinary sodium help distinguish from? What other entity does it help exclude?
2: Yeah. Um... So I think that there's always exceptions to the rule, but at this point, I do feel fairly comfortable that this is not at least florid acute tubular necrosis, um, which we otherwise do refer to as ATN.
0: Great, Judy, what other entities other than volume depletion could cause a low urinary sodium?
1: So anything else where um, the effect of volume that the kidney is seeing is low, so the effect of circulating volume is low, Um, And the most common things are congestive heart failure, where the heart isn't working, or cirrhosis, where the liver isn't functioning. Other things that can do that are extensive burns. Um, Early ATN, or acute tubular necrosis, can actually present with a really low urine sodium. Um, Contrast causes really intense renal vasoconstriction, so that can present with a low urine sodium. And then early obstruction can also present with a low urine sodium.
0: Okay, that's an excellent differential for a low urinary sodium. Okay, so the team does an HMP, and there's no evidence of cirrhosis, burns, or heart failure. They calculate a phena, which is less than 1%. Sophie, what is a phena?
2: So I'm going to apologize in advance because we're doing a little bit of math here, but we'll keep it sort of brief. So phena is a urine sodium multiplied by the plasma creatinine, and that product is divided by the plasma sodium uh, multiplied by the urine creatinine. And just to give some perspective, essentially what the kidney does is it filters sodium first, and then its job is either to reabsorb sodium or not. So basically what we're looking at is the percentage of how much um, of the sodium is making it out into our urine compared to how much is being filtered.
0: Great, Judy. Given the urinary sodium of ten and the phena of one percent, what is your assessment, and how would you treat this patient?
1: So both these values suggest that the patient will be volume responsive, um, because we've excluded other causes of a low urinary sodium, such as heart failure or cirrhosis or burns, um, and so you can give IV fluids. Um, but you've got to remember when you give IV fluids, it's a medication like any other medication and you need to specify the exact amount that you're giving it and the period over which you're giving it. Um, and I personally prefer intermittently bolusing IV fluids and then reassessing the patient pretty frequently just to make sure they're tolerating the fluids and you're having the desired response. Because the last thing you want to do is run in a bunch of IV fluids into a patient that's not making any urine and may have a subopt- suboptimal cardiac function because that could be dangerous. Um, so. If you do do want to do continuous maintenance, you really need to specify the amount that you're giving, say, like one liter over 10 hours or something like that. But I would never just let maintenance fluids run continuously.
0: Yeah, this is a pet peeve of nephrologists. Medications um, are viewed differently than IV fluids, but IV fluids are actually medications. So we need to be exact in how we administer them. Okay, so this case highlights how the urinary sodium and the FINA can be used to determine if an oliguric patient will be volume responsors. Just a reminder, disease states that also give you a low urinary sodium and FINA, which should not be treated with volume, include heart failure and cirrhosis. All right, on to our next case, ladies. A 27-year-old woman presents to the ER with near syncope. She reports fluid retention with swelling of the face, hands, trunks, and limbs. She was evaluated by an outside physician who found no evidence of cardiac hepatic or renal disease. She was prescribed a loop diuretic, furosemide, 40 milligrams PO-BID, for her symptoms. Sophie, would urine sodium help us figure out if this patient is volume depleted and whether that is the cause of her neurosyncope?
2: Yeah, well, so let's... um. <clears throat> Just review what furosemide does to help answer this question. So furosemide is a loop diuretic. It's more aptly named Lasix. Um, I like to say last six hours. I try and remind my med students and residents this. Um, That's why it's called that. Anyways, Lasix works by blocking sodium, potassium, and chloride reabsorption in the thick ascending loop of Henle. And when this is done, that means that those electrolytes are staying in the urine, as opposed to being reabsorbed um, into the drug, drug. Excuse me, bloodstream. Therefore, um, basically, what's happening with a lot of the diuretic, especially in somebody who doesn't need one, need one, is that they are losing sodium in their use in their urine. So that's causing volume depletion but it also is elevating sodium measurements in the urine. Um, and it will also elevated, elevate FENa calculations. So if her urine sodium is low, it's um, it would still be a diagnosis of volume depletion. But if it's not low, um, she may be volume depleted, but the urine sodium is high due to that loop diuretic.
0: Great. So Judy, is there a test that can help us determine if this patient's volume depleted Um, when someone is on a loop diuretic that we can use in in place of the phenol?
1: Yes. So you can use a fractional excretion of urea because urea excretion is not affected by loop diuretics like Lasix. And so the fractional excretion of urea is similar to the fractional excretion of sodium. It's the urine urea times the plasma creatinine, that product divided by the plasma urea times the urine creatinine. And if you do your calculations, a fractional excretion of urea less than 35% suggests decreased effective circulating volume.
0: Great. So um, maybe when we send off our urine sodium, I know, Judy, you tend to send off a urine urea at the same time just so that you can calculate this. Is that correct? Is that your yes. habit?
1: Yes. I always try to do both just because um, sometimes it's unclear from the history exactly when somebody was, if they're at home, it's really unclear when they last took their Lasix, for instance. And I've had many cases of patients who come into the hospital who have been throwing up or having diarrhea, but still faithfully take their diuretics, including Lasix.
0: Great, so a fractional excretion of urea can help be helpful in patients uh, to determine if their volume depleted in the setting of a loop diuretic. There are a few situations in which a fractional excretion of urea is not helpful. Those include the use of acetazolamide, which is a diuretic that works on the proximal tubule, Um, osmotic diuresis, such as with hyperglycemia. Obviously, if you're giving urea to somebody, that can affect the outcome. And then um, elderly and patients with with sepsis, um, urea reabsorption is diminished in the proximal tubule and falsely high, um, and have a falsely high fractional excretion of urea, even though they may respond to fluids. Okay. On to our third case. A 55-year-old male is admitted with a weight loss and a pelvic abscess possible mass. He reports having lost 50 pounds in the past year and several pounds in the past weeks. He has had fever, nausea, and vomiting. His primary team placed an NG tube, which is on low intermittent suction. You are called for a rise in his creatinine from 1 to 1.4. His urinalysis is remarkable for a urine pH of seven. His chem-7 reveals a K of three and a bicarbonate of 30. And just to remind people who might not be used to looking at these values, uh, creatinine of 1.4 is high. A urinalysis with a urine pH of seven, that would be high. A potassium of three is low, and a bicarbonate of 30 is high. How
2: useful will a urinary sodium be in this setting, Sophie? So the urine sodium uh, may not be helpful in this case. Um, Just to review one more time, this patient is hypokalemic with a potassium of 3, and they have a metabolic alkalosis with a bicarb of 30, and their urine is also alkalotic. So um, in this setting, your urine sodium um, may actually be high even if their volume depleted. And basically, bicarb, as Judy had mentioned in our first case, is considered a non-reabsorbable anion. So this bicarb is actually going to be, actually, if it's in excess in our blood, we're not go- it's going to be in excess beyond our reabsorbable capabilities in our urine, and we're going to pee out an excess of bicarb. When we're doing that, as um, I think Sarah said, uh, the sodium is literally taken hostage and dragged out in the urine with it. So our urine sodium is potentially going to be high in this scenario. Um, I think that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> great. That was, <laughs> that was great.
0: <laughs> Judy, is there a test which may be more helpful in this specific setting, meaning a metabolic alkalosis um, than the urinary sodium to determine if the patient's volume depleted?
1: Yes, there is. So, in this setting, so in the setting where severe metabolic alkalosis, um, we like to look at the urine chloride. Generally, uh, in patients that don't have a metabolic alkalosis, the urine sodium is roughly equal to the urine chloride, um, and that's because, as we mentioned before, your urine cannot be electrically charged. So, for every cation or urinary sodium that you excrete, you also have to uh, excrete. A counter anion, which in this case is chloride. However, in cases where you're excreting a lot of bicarb, which is dragging a lot of sodium out with it, your urine sodium may be paradoxically high, even as your urine chloride is actually low, as you try to, uh, you know, the kidney tries to reabsorb as much sodium chloride as it can. Um, So in this case, checking a urine chloride would be very helpful, and a urine chloride of less than twenty. Or low fractional excretion of chloride would be very suggestive of volume depletion.
2: Yeah, we could also do um, check a ratio of a urine sodium to chloride in these patients. Um, if you do a urine sodium to chloride ratio that's greater than one point six, this can also be suggestive of volume depletion um, in the setting of extrarenal generation of metabolic alkalosis, like in this case.
0: Great. So to summarize, a urine chloride or a fractional excretion of chloride may be more helpful in determining volume depletion in the setting of a metabolic alkalosis. All right. Well, that's our last case this podcast, um, but we'll quickly review our learning objectives. I guess I'll start. Urinary sodium and fractional excretion of sodium can help determine effective
2: circulating volume. Sophie? (laughs) I'll go next. Urine urine sodium and fina are not indicative of body sodium
1: in the setting of CHF and cirrhosis. So urine sodium may be misleading in the setting of extreme urine volumes, either urine volumes that are very high or very low.
0: And fractional excretion of urea can be used in place of a
2: fina in the context of a patient who's been on a loop diuretic.
1: Okay, and last
2: but not least, the urine chloride can be used in place of sodium when a patient has a known reabsorbable anion, which may lead to an elevated urine sodium despite volume depletion.
0: Well, that ends our third episode of the Kidney Essentials Podcast. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. Thanks, everybody. Bye, and thanks for listening. Credits, Seamus Klingsborne for editing, Josh Strong for graphics, and the University of Colorado Division of Nephrology for giving Judy and my, me our jobs, and the VA employees Sophie. So thank you, VA. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks,
1: VA. <laughs> Bye. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.